Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. Welcome to an insightful episode featuring Neil Shah, a leading UK authority on stress management and founder of the Stress Management Society. Neil, a consultant and motivational speaker, has impacted thousands worldwide through coaching and workshops. In this interview, he shares his journey from a breakdown in his 20s to becoming a stress management expert. Explore Neil's definition of stress, its common symptoms, and the crucial need for stress management in the workplace. Discover practical tools and lessons for real-life applications and insights from his book, Turning Negatives into Positives. Neil discusses work-related stress issues, coaching approaches for business leaders, and the concept of meaningful employment. Gain some top tips for employees facing stress and learn how family members can support those who are also suffering from stress. Join us for a conversation inspiring positive transformations in stress management and overall well-being. I'd love for you to start by telling us about your breakdown in your 20s and the journey you subsequently embarked on as a result of that and why you've ended up doing what you do today. I guess my journey started several years before the breakdown, which actually just for as a point of reference, I kind of now look at it as a breakthrough, not a breakdown. Uh, I had to have that experience. Um, but I started my journey that led me to the point where I had the breakthrough about five years before that. I, in my early 20s, started a business, an IT recruitment and consultancy business, which I got into for one reason, one reason only. I saw an opportunity to make money. It was a very ego-fueled existence. And I did, and I was very, very successful. But when you're on the path that doesn't lead you to your ultimate destiny, the universe has a way of giving you a course correction. And I had not just a minor course correction, I got a baseball bat around the head. And I went from living the high life and driving fancy cars and dating an actress and was winning awards and got invited to number 10 down the street to have breaks with the prime minister to losing everything. And the fall from that summit was so rapid, I didn't know what hit me. I went in a very short period of time to losing all my money, business gone, cars repossessed. The person I was in a relationship was cheating on me. All the people I thought were my closest friends turned their back on me. Some actually went you know, I'd go as far as saying potentially stab me in the back. I ended up, as you so rightly said, having what could be described as a, a breakdown. Got to the point for several weeks I couldn't leave my house. I was just locked in my bedroom. And the emotional pain I was in was just getting deeper and deeper. It was getting more and more challenging to cope with. And eventually arrived at a point where I would have sought any solution for that pain to end, even if that meant flicking the off switch on nil. Convinced myself that was the right thing to do, made a decision to do that, and ultimately got to a point where I did. I took action against that and attempted to end my own life. The path out from that experience led to my parents wouldn't let me go home. And I just remember sort of being back at my parents' house, a grown adult, and my dad screaming down at me to come down and watch EastEnders. My mom telling me my dinner's ready. And I thought to myself, what the hell has happened to my life? 
And essentially, I got to the point where it's, I was just fed up of being in this deep, dark valley. I was kind of stuck in the darkest valley I'd ever found myself in my life. And I just wanted to be back on top of the world again. And probably a long story for another day. But in 2003, that's exactly what I decided to do, to travel out to the Himalayas to attempt to climb Mount Everest. And I guess that's where I had, dare I say, a spiritual epiphany. Mm. where I ended up having a conversation with the mountain. I can remember being on my hands and knees, crying my eyes out. Might have been exhaustion, might have been low oxygen. It might have been a spiritual experience. It doesn't matter because the content of that conversation changed the course of my life. And the content was, you've just had the most beautiful gift. Stop crying and feeling sorry for yourself. How are you going to use this gift to make the world a better place? And that's where I was inspired to set up the Stress Management Society, which at the last count has reached more than 100 million people with the various different programs and campaigns we've been involved with. It's a, a charity that's raising awareness around issues um, connected to mental health. I didn't know what that looked like at the time. It was just, I want to help people. So I decided to use my background and experience in working with large corporates to develop programs of culture change within corporates and then national level programs. We work with many countries around the world and using the money we're generating from that to fund all our non-commercial programs. And that's really what I stand for is we still have so much guilt, shame and stigma associated with subjects around mental health. And I guess our job is just to kind of, not just to raise awareness, but to normalize and destigmatize the subject because in 2023, we've made so many societal advancements. But when it comes to mental health, we're going in the wrong direction. And I think the crucial thing is, is that flippant, how are you? And everyone just says by default, yeah, good, fine. And it's actually, no, how how are you? And I think quite often people say, if you're suspicious, that particularly with men, that they're going through something, you need to ask the question twice. So that was a campaign, Time to Talk campaign we were involved with a few years ago, which is hashtag ask twice. And it's interesting that just asking the same question again, how you get a different response. But if we just, you know, that's an interesting point for us to start. How inauthentic are we with the most commonly asked question on the planet in any language? How are you? In Britain, how, how, how do most people respond? Oh, I'm good, not bad. Well, not bad. What does that mean? You're not bad. You're not good. But why are you? Can't complain. You say you can't complain. You kind of just complain by saying you can't complain. Are you looking for something to complain for? I asked someone the other day, I was in Dubai for work, and I said, how are you? And they said, I'm still alive. I'm like, oh my God, are you ill? Like, what, what's wrong? They're like, no, it's just their standard response. I'm surviving. Now, regardless of the response, if it's your default response, you're not actually answering the question. Someone's inquiring about your well-being and your welfare. But here's the challenge. Most people that are asking the question don't actually want to know how you are. Well, that's the thing, right? So quite often I'm like, how long have you got? If I'm feeling in a slightly, you know, playful mood, I just, I'm like, it's such a ridiculous question because people just expect the default answer to be so, so good, fine. This is part of the challenge, particularly in the world that we find ourselves in today. There is so many things going on. It's so overwhelming. We seem to be jumping from crisis to crisis to crisis. And you've just got your head around the last crisis and another one comes along. And excuse the analogy, Pandora, but if I came up to you right now and I stabbed you in the leg with a fork, it's going to hurt and you're going to scream and you'll probably slap me in the face for, for doing something horrible. But if I kept going and kept doing it, after a while you get annoyed and it's still hurting, but you start to become desensitized to it. And after a while, as much as it's not pleasant, it's very uncomfortable, it's challenging, you kind of just get used to it. And sadly, I'm seeing more and more people sinking into apathy. You know, somebody said to me the other day when, when I said, like, okay, we've got another challenge. We need to consider how we react and respond to it. And they're like, their exact words were, I've got no more Fs left to give. 
you get to the point where you've run out of steam, you're exhausted. And I feel like as much as obviously there's a new crisis now in the Middle East, people have just got to the point of exhaustion because how long can we keep running from a state of crisis? And that exhaustion sadly leads to depression. So, Neil, moving on to stress, because you do a lot of work around stress and stress management. So how do you define stress? What are the common symptoms and how does it manifest itself, generally speaking, in people who you see? It's an interesting question. How do you define stress? You ask a million people, how many you experience stress? And pretty much everyone will say, yes, I've experienced it, particularly if you're alive on the planet today. But you ask those million people to define stress, you'll probably get a few thousand responses and they'll all be very, very different. Which is even though it's something that is a huge part of our day-to-day language, most people don't actually know what stress means or, or what it actually is. And if we want to find solutions, universal solutions, we need to have a universal understanding. And part of the challenge is depending on who you speak to, you get a very different response. You speak to medical professionals, you get a biological medical definition of stress, you speak to people in the psychology community, you get psychosocial models, the health and safety community do a lot of work around stress, they're more looking at it from a risk perspective and a health and safety perspective. There are academic institutions like Roehampton and Harvard that have been doing research on stress and they've got their models. And I struggle with this. And it was, I think, in 2004, I was traveling out to the States. We had a project with the United Nations at the time. And I got sat next to this really interesting chap. and got talking and spoke about many different things and eventually got around to what we do for a living. So I said, what do you do for a living, my friend? And he said, I'm a stress tester. I was like, wow, fascinating. What's the chance of that? I'm in stress management too. What do you do? Doctor, professor? And he's looking at me blankly like, what are you talking about? I said, what do you stress test? said materials, bridges, buildings, structures, etc. He, he was a structural engineer that specialised in stress testing, but not to people, to materials. And it led to a really fascinating conversation, which essentially went along the lines of, what does stress mean to you? What's your definition of stress? And he told me, and it was F over A equals P. Well, obviously, as an engineer, he had a formula, an equation for stress. Um, didn't understand what I was talking about, so I asked him to define the definition. He said it's force over area because pressure. I still couldn't quite grasp what he was talking about. So he asked me to imagine a bridge, let's say Tower Bridge in London. And let's say we, we start piling double-decker buses on it. And on top of the double-decker buses, we put black London cabs. And let's say this storm that we're having in London leads to a tidal surge on the Thames and HMS Belfast gets washed onto the bridge. And we got loads of elephants and rhinos that escaped from London Zoo that ended up on the bridge. We've got some protesters on there. We've got a couple of Airbus A380s done an emergency landing on the bridge. If we keep going, I don't care how well constructed the bridge is, every bridge on the planet, whether it's Tower Bridge, Sydney Harbour Bridge, Brooklyn Bridge, every bridge, if enough load is applied for long enough, will ultimately collapse. But before it collapses, you'll know it's not bearing the load effectively because it'll be bowing, bending, groaning, creaking, fracturing. When it's giving you those early signs, you've got one or two choices, one or two things that we can do to prevent the vision going on to collapse. You take the load off, take the pressure off, or you reinforce the bridge. When he's describing stress to me in that way, my first reaction is, hold on a minute, humans are exactly the same. Any human being, you put too much pressure, too much demand, too much load on for long enough, we too will ultimately collapse under that excessive pressure. It doesn't matter if you're a special forces soldier or a stay-at-home mum. I'm not saying one is more stressful than the other. It's all about perspective. But ultimately, we all have a breaking point. It rung true for me because I hit my breaking point and my bridge did break. 
thankfully, it wasn't a permanent break and I was able to find a way to rebuild it, but not everyone is that lucky. But if we as a society get much better at recognising and discussing and opening up dialogues around when people's bridges are bowing and buckling, which right now is most of us, hopefully we can get much better preventing anyone from ever getting anywhere near the point of bridge collapse. As Mahatma Gandhi said, that you can judge a society by how it treats its most vulnerable members. I think at that time he was talking about, you know, impoverished people or animals and the rest of it. Right now I'm talking about people that are, are, are suffering because of their mental health and we're not doing anywhere near enough to protect vulnerable members of our society. And for, you know, particularly for both of us that had a first-hand experience, you know that it's not an easy place to navigate out of because... People aren't comfortable even engaging in conversations around it, let alone trying to be there to provide support. I mean, I think it's stress has got to that tipping point, as we've alluded to, and so many people are actually letting that bridge collapse and letting that cup overflow. And it's it has to get to that point in order for them to seek help. Mm. Whereas actually, I think a lot of preventative measures need to be taken and people need to recognise the warning signs. And as you say, they either need to bolster the bridge or they need to take the load off. But it's almost like there's so much shame attached to saying, actually, I am overloaded and I can't take on any more. So I'm taking some time out. And this is why so many people have nervous breakdowns and then they get signed off work. And I mean, also, and suicide, that's another I mean, sign that people are just getting to that point. I just can't cope anymore. And you just have to have a complete relapse and fall to the ground, which shouldn't be happening, really. And also, we've got to consider beyond that, if we talk about some of the the most common reasons for a human being to die, illnesses or disease of premature death, like heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, stroke, stress is a contributing factor, Mm. both directly and indirectly. Directly, it significantly affects the way that your body functions. Indirectly, it affects the way you live your life. You're less likely to sleep well, exercise, eat healthy, socialize, all the things that bring about optimal well-being. So it's kind of a double whammy. In, in the sense that, yes, you know, it will significantly increase your chances directly of having serious illness. But because it changed the way you live your life, that again is seriously increasing your chance of having serious illness. So I'm not saying stress can directly kill you, but it can definitely massively contribute to things that will. We just need to get better at having grown up conversations about this. And, and exactly as we've been talking about, if we capture it early enough, you can prevent people from getting anywhere near the point of, of their bridge collapsing. I guess one of the challenges is some of the solutions are so simplistic that people often roll their eyes in the back of their head and ignore them because it's well, it can't be that simple. Well, that's one of the challenges that we face is people don't recognize the problem, but also they're not willing to acknowledge some of the seriously easy solutions that can prevent your bridge from getting anywhere near the point of bridge collapse. So let's discuss some of those. And I mean, I I know you do a lot of coaching and and with a workplace, for example, and and a lot with employees and employers, but what are your most basic tools that you would share with someone who's suffering from stress? At this time of year, we do a lot of media work and particularly if you're doing a radio or television interview, you've got a couple of minutes and they want, what's the top five things that we can do to reduce stress? Stop sharing them. And I'll tell you why. We live in a world of content overload. There is too much information out there. We're exposed to so much information. And at some level, we all know what we should be doing. It's part of the challenge. You know, if you talk about the top four things to do to improve your health, you already know. We've 
discussed them already. Drink two litres of water, eat five bits of fruit and vegetable, walk 10,000 steps, sleep seven or eight hours a night. But a lot of people know that information and take no action against it. Knowing you've got to do these things brings zero benefit to your life. You have to actually do it. So when it comes to, again, sort of developing a stronger bridge, improving your resilience to stress at some level, we all know. But if, let's say, there was someone that didn't know, and I said, okay, great. Well, now what I need to do is have at least 45 minutes out in nature, unplugged from your devices. I want you to spend some time journaling every day. Maybe have some time for mindfulness. Maybe sit and watch your breath or uh, engage in some kind of mindfulness practice. Do some gratitude journaling at the end of every day. I've actually had people over the last couple of years that I've been sharing ideas that have turned around to me and said, you're stressing me out. I've already got so much to do. I've already got so much demand in my life. Now you're expecting me to find time for five new things. So actually the advice on what we can do to strengthen our bridge for some people can create more stress for a lot of people, actually. Yeah. And the notion of actually that stress can kill you or stress, you, you get all these sort of different conflicting messages that also contributes to the stress because then you're sort of there being like, oh my goodness, I'm stressed. Therefore, I'm going to die early. I'm going to develop some chronic disease. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. And your mind quickly starts catastrophizing and you go down a complete vortex. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, it's like cigarettes. You buy a box of cigarettes. I've not seen a box of cigarettes in a while. And I was in a, a shop the other day and someone had bought some and was walking out. And it's like literally pictures of lungs and hearts that are completely decimated by by tar and you know that yet people still engage in these activities now we've got to consider you know living our high stress lifestyle with no counterbalance for it is doing as much damage to your body as smoking is i'd like to think a lot of people are aware of that so for, for me right now the moment we're in is not about introducing more content it's tackling the barriers to uptake for the things that we already know why are we not doing the basics? Because if we can tackle that and we can get better as a society of encouraging and celebrating when people are taking positive action to improve their well-being, this doesn't just help with mental health. It doesn't just help us to deal with stress. It's also good for our physical health because it's two sides of the same coin. For far too long, we've been looking at mental health and physical health as two separate ideas. In fact, even the way we view them, if I say to you physical health, Pandora, most people will think when you offer the term physical health, they'll think about exercising, eating healthy, you know, getting good night's sleep, etc. They'll think about it potentially in the positive. You don't often think about physical health when someone offers you the term physical health as illness, if that makes sense. Whereas you offer the term mental health to most people, they start thinking depression, anxiety, etc., etc. Why is that? Why is mental health often viewed as the negative and physical health is often viewed as the positive? We're just describing different aspects of our health. And that's part of the challenge is we need to reframe it. Who has mental health? Everyone. It's just some days it's good and some days it's not so good. And that's okay. Just like some days your physical health is good and some days it's not. When we get better understanding the spectrum, it starts with experiences that potentially cause stress and anxiety. If you stay in that state for extended periods of time, it will start to have an effect on your mental health. Short periods of stress are fine. Like, for example, me trying to get here today and delays on the train and having to run from one platform to another to make sure I got the train so I could get here as quickly as I could. There was a moment of stress. But I got on the train, I took a breath and I relaxed. Same as trying to get into the building today. Moment of stress, I took a breath, sat down, relaxed. The stress moment is over. We can't live in that state because when you do, after a while, it gets exhausting and it will affect your mental health. But even at that point, it's not mental illness. 
When your mental health has been compromised for long enough, that eventually can lead to mental illness. Mm. But it's the same with physical health. If there is something that's causing you stress and that has an impact on your sleep, your diet, you know, your movement, over time that can have an impact on your physical health. Physical health isn't illness, but your body isn't operating in an optimal state, which then creates increased susceptibility to illness. If we get better at picking it up at the early stage or even at the point where your mental or physical health has been compromised, you've still got the ability to take action to reverse the effects of, of, of whatever you're experiencing and prevent it from getting to the point where it's causing illness. Sadly, we, we find ourselves in a society, we get to the point where the illness is there and then we try and address the symptoms, not why we are there. The whole allopathic medical system is designed to address symptoms and it's great at doing that. But we kind of need to, to create an alternative narrative about preventative measures, about functional medicine, which still seems to be dismissed as woo-woo, which I don't understand because these are the basic foundations for health, not just for our mental and emotional state and, and to better equip us to cope with stress, but our overall well-being. And, and this is where I think everybody should be taking a daily prescription of functional medicine. I know. And I mean, as you said, it's being proactive as opposed to reactive. And it's actually looking after the vessel. And as we move away from that Descartian view that the mind and body separation is so profound, it's just not. As we know more about the vagus nerve and we know more about the gut brain axis connection and we know about the, you know, the neural pathways in our brain, which are affected by our nervous system. I mean, all sorts of things, but I think it's about education and it's also about buy-in because I think the trouble is, is a lot of people, as you say, you give them the tools and there's no buy-in because they don't really understand. Well, if I do some breath work for five minutes a day, if I meditate for 10 minutes a day and I fall victim to this too myself, I know at the moment I should be meditating every morning. Do I create the time and the space for it? No, I don't. Now, <laughs> it's very hard convincing people until they can see the benefits, but there has got to be a way, I feel, of doing it more effectively because it's not working what we're doing at the moment. And so how do you help people to find that why? It's a great question and it's not an easy one to answer because for a lot of people, they'll end up with a wake-up call and often... It's not an easy wake-up call because it will be something that's happened directly to you or someone that you care about. It shouldn't take for that to happen. But we do need to change this narrative. We do live in a consumerist society, which is driven by if something breaks, you want it delivered to your door the very next day, rather than in older societies, even you know, 34 years ago, if something breaks, you find a way to fix it. You don't just order a new one off of Amazon Prime. When there is sickness, we want a solution in a blister pack or out of a vial. And again, isn't it better to prevent ourselves getting to the point where you need that solution because you've been proactively managing your well-being? And actually, the prevention is far easier, far less costly and far less challenging than the cure. But here's the kicker. The preventative measures don't just stave off illness. If there is nothing wrong with you, it's like, you know, if you take a medication, you've got an illness, either they address the illness, or they do nothing. Whereas if you go for a walk every day, if you meditate, if you eat healthy, even if there's nothing wrong with you, it's going to improve your health. It's going to make you greater than you were before, if that makes sense. There's no argument against. There's literally zero argument against us taking action to build and develop a stronger, more resilient bridge. Except time and energy because how much of our energy is being consumed by things that are taking us out of the reality of this moment 
The big one for me, particularly over the last 20 years, has been the smartphone. Life was a lot more simple before Apple created the iPhone. Because for many of us, our working day and our interaction with you know, the world at large came when you sat down in front of a computer, which often wasn't two minutes after you woke up. And equally, it finished at the point you logged off, which was either when you left work or you know, when you logged your computer off, which typically wasn't 30 seconds before you went to sleep. We are literally always on. And I go back to that kind of the, the idea of the matrix. It's, it's, as much as many people laugh at that notion, we are plugged in from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. I've got little children that I see on the train today, like two-year-old children looking at a screen. We're plugging them in as early as we can, which means that we're so distracted by the noise. We're not really being present to our own unique experience. And part of this is drawing from John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, is be present in this moment with no judgment. How much judgment do we have about the world at large? Who's right and who's wrong? The polarity that seems to exist on so many different subjects, on so many different areas, and we're so busy fighting each other and arguing about our respective points. We're not being present to our true experience in a way that even 20, 30 years ago, most people had time every day where they were present to the reality of their life. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. You've, I mean, you've said that business leaders have a large responsibility to drive change. And I know that in companies, that's particularly true. How can they do that? I think this is not just true within businesses. I think there's a, a bigger rallying call here right now. There's a direct correlation between the increase of mental health issues and suicidality over the last 50 or 60 years and the degradation of community. The data that underpins this is, in, in Western society, I've already alluded to sort of the, the, the prevalence of mental health issues and suicidality and main cause of death, a man under the age of 45. And, you know, the data goes on just to show how much of a serious issue we've got with this. But there are areas in the world, some that have been labelled as blue zones, areas in the world where people typically tend to live much longer, uh, live to 80, 100 years of age. But it's not just that, that how long they live, but it's the quality of life is significantly improved. But what's really fascinating about these areas is, you know, many of these in areas that are not hyper-connected, not like cities like London. They, they tend to be places, I think there's one in in, in Sicily and there's some in the, the Amazonian jungle. There's some in like, the Himalayas. There's an area in northern Japan, Papua New Guinea. And these are places, they don't have Amazon Prime and hospitals and pharmacies and all the kind of trappings of 21st century lifestyle. So how is it these people are living longer, happier lives than we are, that have very low incidence of mental health, hardly any issues around suicidality? And there's one common factor. Yes, diet and lifestyle is a big part of it. But there was one overarching theme for me that connected all of these blue zone areas is community. They had a strong sense of community where it wasn't just people connected with each other because they wanted to be a part of a community. They quite literally relied on each other. In some of these areas, they wouldn't survive without being able to rely on each other. 
we find ourselves, particularly in London, in a highly individualized city. I'm a born and bred Londoner. I love London. But we won an award recently, or we won a title, should I say, recently, which I'm not proud of. London was voted as the loneliest city on the planet. Eight and a half million, nine million people living in London. How is it that we are the loneliest city on the planet? You are never alone. Wherever you are, there's probably a few hundred, if not a thousand people within, you know, a few hundred meters of you. But it's the difference between being alone and being lonely. Being alone is physically there's no one around. Being lonely is the lack of connection. And this is one of the things that I found that, for me, is the most powerful cultural antidote to the experiences we're having around stress and mental health, is the sense of community, is the sense that there are people out there that care, that have got your back. I'm pretty sure it was a Harvard study that was been, been running for like 60 or 70 years. And they asked people, how many people in your life can you fully trust and rely on? And I think, uh, you know, in the, the 50s and 60s, it was like three or something like that. I think the last time they did the study, it was less than half. So, which essentially is suggesting there's a lot of people out there who haven't got a single person. Yeah, particularly in America, I've had the same statistics, yeah. This, for me, is where your question around in the workplace for most of us, if you have no other community, if you have moved to a new city or a new neighborhood and you don't know anyone else around, your workplace is probably the one community that you're alone. And I know this because I've traveled and worked in many different parts of the world. And the people that I worked with were my friends. They were the people that I spent time with, that I relied on, that were my support network. Think about what happened three years ago when we shut society down and put people into lockdowns in most parts of the world. Most people never really went back to how society was before that. Many workplaces are now mostly virtual or hybrid, which means that you don't have that same sense of community. And for me, at the moment, the rallying call to every person that is a people leader within an organization or makes strategic decisions in any business is consider how you are developing the culture of your organization so there is a community that we know people beyond our technical, functional, operational roles, where you cannot reduce life to a series of Zoom, Teams, Skype calls with no human interaction because you lose the culture, you lose the human connection. There were some studies that showed that people that have a workplace best friend are like 60% less likely to have mental health issues because you've got someone that you can turn to and talk to. And I think this is where we need to look at how we can start to reintroduce those water cooler coffee machine moments, the social activities. And that's not necessarily socializing, like let's go out for a beer or for a coffee, but moments where we can actually connect with each other as human beings beyond just our roles within the workplace. And you, you might get people focused on their work and not doing other things that are superfluous, but what are you losing at the back end? And we already know this because there's a phrase that you may have come across called the great resignation, which they call this period the great resignation because more people are leaving their jobs than we've ever experienced in any other economic downturn in history. That doesn't normally happen. When there are economic challenges, people hold on to their jobs for dear life. And our research is suggesting a lot of people, number one, are feeling burnt out because we're working longer hours, particularly when you're working from home. You start when you wake up and you might end up working long into the evenings. But secondly, you don't have the cultural connection with your workplace, with your colleagues, with, with your organization. And that kind of means after a while, you just don't feel like you're a part of something in the way that you would 
if you had physical connection and relationships with the people you work with. Uh, I think this extends beyond the workplace, but I think that's a good place to start. I think we need to get better as a society. And I really want London to lose its title of being the loneliest city on the planet and for us to get better at reaching out to people that might feel a bit disconnected or isolated at the moment. Because that's one of the first steps that we can take to start tackling the issues we've got around mental health. I know we've got to finish, but I'd just love to know how family members or a partner of someone can help if they have someone close to them who is suffering with really bad stress and they feel that they're at that tipping point. What would you say to them? So there's a, an analogy that we put together. It's called class. Be classy. So number one, make a connection. And if that means you're opening up a subject on a topic that's accessible, like in Britain, we love talking about the weather. It might be something as inane as the weather, sport, What's going on in the world? What do you have for lunch? How's your life? You know, just a kind of a general conversation to build a connection. And then listen. Listen first and listen longer. Most people don't actually listen. They wait for a break in the conversation so they can interject with their thoughts, their feelings, their ideas, their suggestions. I encourage everyone to not just ask open-ended questions and listen for an answer. And if you don't get an answer, ask again or ask in a different way. And once the person that's sharing has finished speaking, wait, let there be some silence. Because by interjecting, you may prevent them from going into a process where they are, they're reflecting and thinking and sharing something else. So you know, give periods of silence because that can create great reflection points. Acknowledge. So the A of the class model is acknowledge. So acknowledge, even if you don't agree with what was someone saying or what they're thinking and feeling, particularly at the moment, there are so many issues where Someone might be upset, stressed, challenged by something that they believe or triggered by something that's happened external to them, particularly with some of the current events that we're experiencing. Don't have to agree with everyone, but be willing to acknowledge and see things from their perspective. This is where empathy comes in. Empathy isn't changing someone. It's just trying to see things from their perspective to be able to stand in their shoes. And the last bit is provide support. And what I mean by providing support not telling them what to do, asking them, what do you need? How can I best support you right now? Ask, don't presume. And it could be they, they need a cuddle, they might need a walk, they might just need you to listen. They might not know where to go or how to get help. But actually by asking that really crucial question, what support do you need? You aren't presuming and you're not then jumping in with something that may go against what they're actually looking for, which could then cause them to shut down. And the last S, it's kind of two, rolled into one, is signposting and safeguarding. Again, most of us are not trained psychological or mental health professionals, so we don't necessarily know how to deal with it. But what I do encourage people to find out is like, if someone is compromised, it's very easy to do a bit of research and find out where you can signpost people to, whether that's to one of the charities like Samaritans, Calm, Mind, if it's a young person, Papyrus, to our website, there are places out there you can sign people to. If they work in a large company, inevitably they, they may have access to an employee assistance program or internal staff counselling, to their GP if you're concerned. And the safeguarding, if you're really concerned about someone's well-being and welfare and you don't know what to do, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. If you really are concerned about someone's safety, phone the relevant authorities. And if that means making an emergency call, it could be the difference. If we get better at listening, holding space, asking questions and being willing to be there to support someone that is clearly compromised, we can actually take the necessary action to prevent more and more people's bridges collapsing. 
Well, Neil, it's been an absolute honour to have you here. So thank you so much for taking the time to come here. And yeah, I'm eternally grateful. You're, you're most welcome. If anyone wants to find out more about the programmes you run, particularly the Mental Health Champions programme, you can find details at www.stress.org.uk. Uh, we're a, a non-profit organisation that was set up to raise awareness on this issue, but we can't do this alone. So we're encouraging everyone to get involved to help us to raise awareness of this issue that is obviously impacting our society so deeply. Yeah, and we'll put all the details in the show notes. So thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258. 